This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Helen Smith is a forensic psychologist, a well-known writer who has written for a variety of publications, including the Los Angeles Times and the Christian Science Monitor. She holds a Ph.D. from the University of Tennessee and master's degrees from the New School for Social Research and the City University of New York. She's a widely quoted commentator, a frequent spokesperson in the media, and she's also a very active blogger. She's also the author of a very important new book entitled Men on Strike, Why Men Are Boycotting Marriage, Fatherhood, and the American Dream, and Why It Matters. Dr. Helen Smith, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, this is a topic that you announced so clearly in the title of your book, and and there's an (laughs) elegant simplicity and directness to that. But I'm going to ask you the same question I ask almost every author on this program. Why did you write this book? Um, Well, I wrote this book because there's a lot of books out there, and they're all about how men are not getting married or going to college or whatever, and there are books like The End of Men or Manning Up or Save the Males that have a really slightly negative tone because the basic message of these books is that men are acting immaturely. My point for writing the book was that men are acting rationally, that the rewards for men in the fields of marriage, education, career, and fatherhood are a lot less than they used to be, and the costs and dangers are higher, and so men are opting out. But I think it's important because so many men around the country, and and you've probably experienced this yourself, but I think so many men are talking about marriage and relationships, and they talk to each other sometimes, or they talk to themselves, and people can't quite figure out why, you know, men don't want to be engaged in these types of relationships as much anymore. And so I think the book is a good starting place to sort of understand what's happening, what are the cultural and the the societal reasons that men aren't, aren't wanting to commit the way they used to. We're going to talk about the three strikes that you say men have declared, a strike on marriage, a strike on education, especially higher education, and a strike mm-hmm. on, on work and the larger engagement with the society. But I find the most revolutionary part of your argument, the part that you just mentioned, moral ethicists, philosophers, sociologists looking at why people behave the way they do, deploy several theories. One of them is called, as you would well know, rational choice theory. You're the Mm -hmm. first person I know to apply rational choice theory to this equation, and I think it's very important. In other words, you're arguing that men, in showing these different and new patterns of behavior, are actually making what is, in their own minds, a rational choice. Well, that's just human behavior, but I think, as a society, we have to realize that the more of the behavior reward and, you know, that you get more of the reward behaviors you reward and less of the behaviors that you punish. And we're rewarding um, men being, you know, marriage material or providers or anything. We're rewarding that less and less and punishing it more. Um, You know, when you think about even marriage, like 50 years ago, a man was sort of the head of the household or looked up to and treated with respect. And now married men are seen as less of a man by by society, by the media. And in, in a sense, even if he has kids, he's Instead of being word cleaver, he's seen more as, like, just kind of an idiot, uh, especially in the media and that sort of thing. But I agree that, you know, I don't know why we don't think that men have rational choice and that somehow even other men tell men just to man up and go ahead and keep doing the things that society expects of them. But the the question becomes, why should they? Why should they do something that is, you know, why should they um, be involved in a system that's so stacked against them? It doesn't make any sense. 
Um, we wouldn't say that if it was about women. If women were getting a raw deal somehow, we'd say, oh, well, of course they're not going to do that. But with men, we're just like, well, you better man up and do and do whatever society expects of you, even if you aren't getting as much out of the deal. Well, to show how this works, let's go to that first issue you address, which is the marriage strike. You quote Glenn Sachs and Diana Thompson, who have written that uh, American men are now, well, subconsciously launching what they call a marriage strike. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and they say that it's mainly for reasons of family court because of the divorce issues. But actually, I think it's even more than that. I wrote a, 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 um, a blog post over at the Huffington Post, and it's called Eight Reasons Straight Men Don't Want to Get Married. And some of the things I looked at is that men, basically the sort of the summary of what I found um, just from talking to men and from getting men on my blog and from just the thousands of men I've talked to over the years in therapy, that some of the things they say about getting married is, number one reason they don't want to get married is they'll lose respect. They just feel like they don't have the kind of respect. And I think going back to the culture, I think we we treat men in a way that says that they're not important, and that trickles down to, you know, the greater community. One of the things that um, James McNamara, he is a communications professor in Sydney, Australia, and he did research and he found that 69% of mass media reporting and commentary on men was unfavorable. And that's compared with just 12% favorable and 19% neutral. And I think when you think about that, when, when, when you're looking at it and saying, okay, almost 70 to- 70% of the time when men are portrayed in the media, they're portrayed as you know, a predator, a goofball, a deadbeat. And that just sends a very negative message um, about how men are to be treated. So I think this loss of respect is a big aspect of why men feel that, you know, they, they don't want to be involved in marriage as often. You know, you correctly draw the attention to the fact that for most, for most of human history, not just most of our recent American history, but from, from Adam and Eve, we might say onward, the mark of adulthood for most men has been marriage, and that's just mm-hmm. not happening. We'll talk about some of those statistics in a moment. But in one particular set of sentences in your book, I think you distill something that no one else has, has really gotten to in this way. You ask the question, what is it about our society that has made growing up seem so attractive to men? You answer, maybe there is no incentive to grow up anymore. It used to be that being a grown-up, responsible man was rewarded with respect, power, and deference. Now you get much less of that, if any at all. I think that's a very profound insight. Yeah, I just don't think that, you know, there isn't any incentive to grow up. And to grow up and to um, have, you know, a bad situation where you don't have respect, um, in fact, um, Men even say things like, you know, you lose out on sex. They've done studies that show that people who live together actually have more sex than married men. That doesn't even make, you know, sense. And there's really not much men can do about it in our culture because they're told just you need to do what your wife wants, you're sort of, you know, on the outskirts, or you're not supposed to expect anything because we tell women today they're so empowered and that whatever they want goes. If they, you know, so I I think that that, that really, uh, for a lot of men, makes them feel that a relationship just isn't uh, the best way to show that you're grown up. The other thing is that, you know, being a grown up today, I mean, it, it's not just men, it's, it's women too, but I think our society, there isn't a reward. And even in the greater society, when we look at how, what kinds of rewards we have, we don't reward people for working. I mean, look at what's coming out today. We find out that more and more people are leaving the workforce. Now, some of that is voluntary, but one of the fascinating things is that, um, they found that fewer and fewer men are are in the workforce, and 
even before the recession started, fewer men were in the workforce. And one of the reasons Charles Murray, in Coming Apart, the book he wrote, he found that more and more men are pursuing leisure activities. So men today, um, instead of people see them as not being grown up, but in a certain sense, because of rational choice and because it, their life is, is somewhat better if they spend their time doing leisure pursuits instead of, you know, sort of being this seen as the butt of jokes. Um, being married to, and, and I know you wrote about this. I actually saw a, a post you did on your website mm-hmm. from years ago, but talking about how young people don't want to be married anymore. And one of the things a guy in the, a young man in your, uh, in the post said was he was 17 years old and he said, you know what, I don't, you know, I'm always told that a wife will call you 20 times a day and she'll bother you. And a lot of men, it goes back to, um, losing your freedom and also losing space. And I talk about that in the book about losing male space. That when men get married now, they're sort of relegated down to the basement in what we call now this man cave. And there's a lot of decline of male space in our society that, you know, organizations, even um, to some degree, somewhat religion, but I, I think it's more like the Elks Club or the old, the, the, old, the old clubs that men used to belong to are seen as suspect. And men are not really allowed to get together. And if they do get together, everybody sort of says, well, you know, they, they try to break that apart. So if men want to sort of get together with each other and talk in, you know, either the Boy Scouts or, you know, they're, they're always intruded upon in some way, whether that be, you know, women wanting to break into, you know, know all boy, men's clubs and they don't want men to have uh, gyms of their own. And there are many laws in states that say that men can't have these types of all men or all male situations, whereas women can. And I think that we've lost a lot. I think men do need other men to talk to. In the past, they used to talk to other men, and they they learned, they helped themselves solve problems. If they had a problem in the relationship or they had a problem at home, there was, a, you know, a men's group they could go talk to. And even and where it could... wasn't perhaps as, uh, as upfront as that, I can give personal testimony to the fact that, uh, you know, watching my father and uncles and the community of men uh, alongside me as I grew up and grandfathers and, and all the rest, and I had all of them, I'm thankful to say. Uh, when it came to raising kids and all the rest, they kind of held each other accountable without having to say that's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They did hold each other accountable. And at the same time, there was some camaraderie there, and there was a place where a guy could go, and he, he felt like there was, you know, there was somebody else that he could turn to. And now men are so isolated. And, and, they, and I think for men, um, I looked at a study lately uh, they did, and they found that men are just as depressed as women, that um, men tend to... They tend to have different ways of showing depression. They tend to become more angry or sullen and turn away. And I think that in old times, you know, men used to have other men to talk to. And now men, especially if they're married, are sort of more isolated. All they have is the family who who generally doesn't see them as, you know, they're almost like an accessory in a certain way. And they're maybe they go down to their man cave. But I think having that old, you know, that whole group of guys um, who who – they could talk to and who they could be around and, and like you said, hold accountable in some ways. Now what happens is the society holds men accountable, but they don't give them any privileges at the same time. Um, when you look at it in certain in a certain sense, women have privileges, but they aren't held accountable. And that would be in a lot of the different realms, like in the domestic realm, um, especially if men get divorced, women basically 
get custody of the kids the majority of the time, around 80% of the time. Men tend to pay the majority of alimony, around 93, or actually I, I think it's even higher than that, but men pay the alimony, and a lot of times they don't even get the time with their kids. So men in relationships are held to a very high standard, and um, so I think men today feel that if I make a mistake, I'm going to pay for it the rest of my life. So a lot of men are just deciding, you know, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. The suggestion that men have gone on a strike, perhaps subconsciously or unconsciously so, a strike related to marriage and the workplace and education, the big question is not only the what has happened, but why. And that's why a conversation like this gets us right where we need to think. You actually distill some things down into some uh, almost quintessential sentences. And, uh, for instance, you write this, The real reason many rational men do not marry is that the incentives have changed and growing up is no longer a reward but a punishment for men, so why do it? I haven't seen anyone actually uh, encapsulate the issue quite so clearly. I do think it's right. I think in, in the view of many, especially younger men, Growing up is uh, is not so much a reward, but but a punishment. They lose something rather than gain something in their own minds. Right, I think they do. And at the same time, we see young men who are lost. You know, men are a lot of young guys are lost. And we see so many of these books, like you know, uh, about you know boys who fail or how the decline of men or whatever. And I think that what it is is that men they're opting out and they're not really seeing the reason to so-called grow up, because grow up really means do what we want you to do and don't ask any questions. And if you're not being rewarded for something, if there is nothing there for you, people say, well, you can have a relationship and you're getting companionship of a woman, but you can have that without marriage. And the marriage actually now today is is a legal contract, not through necessarily the church or anything, but it's through our state, our government and our state laws that really put a bootstrap against, you know, men. And For example, um, you know, men pay the majority of child support in this country, and if they don't pay child support, which often can be very, very high, um, between that and sometimes alimony, men, if they don't pay it, they can be put in jail. I recently had a post up on my blog talking about this very issue. There was an an article where a man in New Jersey was making a million dollars a year, and he's now lost his job, and because he can't pay his wife and the kids, $100,000 a year alimony, he's been in and out of jail now for over three years. So people think, oh, this is just something that happens to some deadbeat dads. But it's not. And at the same time, this man said that when he um, talked about his case, people would just say, well, you're a wife beater. But that's what you get. I mean, nobody cares about men. They don't care about their struggles. They don't care about their problems. And one of the statistics that I point out in the book is that 38,000 people a year kill themselves in this country, and over 30,000 of those are men. And the thing is, men a lot of times do get depressed in middle age, and that's when they're going through some of these divorces and these situations that nobody really cares about. And men are much more final. They have a lot of anger and frustration. What they do is they take their own life because they don't want to, you know, turn to others or nobody else. Usually it's because nobody else will help them. And I, and I think this is a really sad situation. And what's sadder to me is that most people don't care um, because they either don't think about it or they think because it's men, it doesn't matter. It only matters if women and children hurt, not if a man does. 
And of course, that's kind of the backside of the equation here. And as uh, as many younger men, especially in a secular frame of mind, are looking at what you describe as a cost benefit analysis, uh, I can see, uh, as your book makes very clear, that for many of them, the costs seem higher than the benefits in their analysis of not only marriage but growing up. But of course, marriage, as important as that is, and we'll get back to that in a moment, uh, is only one of the issues you address in your book. And now to others, we want to turn as well. Uh, including the strike on education. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the fact that men are, are striking from college. Um, well, it's almost like they just never make it there. I don't know. Maybe call, I have a chapter in the book called The College Strike, and maybe that's almost like uh, beyond what's happening because what's happening is men are just not making it into college. Right now it's about 57% women, 43% men, and that's growing where they think in the next 10 years it could be as many as 60%. Um, women going to college. One of the reasons for that is younger, like men in the elementary school grades often have failing grades. They often don't do well. A lot of boys can't read or don't do well in those areas. And they're disconnected from schools because schools, in some sense, over the last 40, 50 years, have become places that are much more um, suitable for girls than they are for boys, and they, they, we worry so much about what, what girls need um, and how do we make that happen. Like, if we see that girls are lagging behind in science, we immediately say, okay, we have to do something. We have to find books that girls like to read. We have to find a way to teach girls that will want, make them want to go into science or make them want to understand math better. But we don't look at boys and we don't say, okay, these boys can't read. What can we do? And a lot of boys are sitting in schools and they're told to stay quiet. We've taken away recess. And um, Christina Hoff Summers talks about this in her book, The War on Boys. She talks a lot about what young men are facing in this country and how we don't have dodge, you know, we don't have any competition in schools. We have done away with dodgeball, we've done away with recess, and boys are sort of left sitting there and being handed, uh, you know, books, uh, you know, written by Toni Morrison or other female writers that sometimes they really can't connect to. The saddest thing to me is that I've talked to boys around the country, and one of the things a 14-year-old boy said to me was that he wanted to start a, a boys' group in his school, and he said that not one male teacher or female teacher in his school in New York City was um, brave enough to help him start that club. They just said, you know what, we don't, we can't do that because they didn't want to have an all-boys club in the school, whereas there's a million all-girls clubs, there's a, you know, a Latino club, there's an African-American club, but they can't have a boys club. And I talk about that some in the book about um, there was one Southern um, school that did start a men's law group in a law school, and they were able to successfully do that. So I talked to men in the book about how do you go about, you know, reclaiming some of that space. Um, and, and some of that can be worked out, but some of it in, in some of the schools, they just will not allow that type of thing. You know, you quote Christina Hoff Summers actually from an interview that uh, that you did with her in which she uh-huh. says this, young men are not going to whine about their predicament. They're not going to organize workshops or support groups. Thank goodness. Teenage boys are the one group of Americans who do not like to gather in circles and talk about grievances and misgivings. So what will they do? My guess is, she says, that vast numbers will just stop trying and withdraw. It would not be an organized strike. It would just happen. It is happening. I think it is happening undeniably. It absolutely is happening. And guys, and and the thing is that nobody really does anything about it. Nobody really mentions it because we're only supposed to talk about women. 
And what is amazing to me is this book is so rare. To me, it seems like there should be a million books about this. And one of the reasons, in the beginning of our interview, you said why, you know, you asked authors, why did you write this book? And one of the reasons I did is I sat for years waiting for someone to write it, and I thought maybe a guy will write it. But unfortunately, men can't really even speak up on these issues. because It looks like special pleading. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like men, if they do speak up, are called sexist, you know, misogynist. They're, they won't be given a microphone. And so um, it it's un, seems unfortunate to me that a small book like mine even, you know, commands any media attention. What what it should be, there should be tons of books like this, and we should be working towards making things equal for, for boys and girls in our schools and for men and women and think about what it's not a zero-sum game. It isn't that if women do better, men do worse. If men do better, women do worse. It's how can we make a, a community and how can we um, have a culture where both are doing well and that we we do recognize. And, and I think one of the things is that I think, especially in the secular world, people want to believe there are no differences in, in men and women or boys and girls. or Everybody is exactly the same. We learn the same way. We do the same things. We want the same things. But that isn't, that's not the case, and yes, in the extremes there are, there are outliers, there are girls who certainly are just as active as boys, and there are boys who are just as sensitive and everything and, um, as girls, but we, you know, if you just sort of look at it um, in general, we have to understand that um, boys sometimes do learn differently than girls, that um, men do need different things than gr- women, and that that's okay. Well, indeed, that's one of the things that we note, not only in school, but in the larger society. But but getting back to schools for a moment, you quote Summers and also other authorities and uh, and offer your own thoughts. And uh, basically, if I could kind of paraphrase uh, a section of your book here, you're arguing that one of the agendas of, uh, of education in, in terms of those who are running the schools, and not only, say, middle schools and high schools, but for that matter, the colleges – is is to make males less masculine as uh, as what they think is a way of serving society. Yes, and we even see that in the social sciences, and it really is disturbing. But all of the social sciences, most of the research that comes out, we see that we're always told that masculinity somehow is negative, that it's bad, that you'll get depressed, it, it's sick, if testosterone needs to be stopped, it creates problems. Um, we never see the wonderful things that it creates, and. Um, you know, I, I think we really need to stop and, and think about what we're doing. That We're trying to decry masculinity. We're trying to say that it's something negative. And when you do that, a lot of guys, they pick up on that, and they're like, you know what, if it's, ne- if it's that negative, if you think my masculinity is that negative, what we see is that a lot of, of especially young boys, don't. They're, they're told that what they are is such a bad thing that I think they just sort of turn inwards and they go to playing video games, or they do other things that will give them this sort of sense of feeling of mastery and control. And I think that's one thing that guys love about video games is you can get, um, you know, when, it, when the world is telling you that you're no good or that, you're, that being male is somehow wrong or negative or creates war and problems, um, then I, I think you sort of turn away and, and you look for other things that tell you that being masculine is good and that mastery and skill and um, the ability to defend yourself and your country is, is positive, and I think that's that's one of the reasons I, I think that young men and, and middle-aged men like video games so much. But I agree that um, that the schools do see masculinity as negative, and even in the colleges now, we I, I talk in the book about the the problem of um, on campus with 
men being told they're perverts, rapists. Uh, we, we see this due process where colleges were sent out a Dear Colleague letter by the Obama administration telling them that they had to lower the preponderance of evidence against young men, and now everything is turned into sexual assault. If a young man um, is found, you know, if somebody accuses, if a woman accuses him of sexual assault, all they have to do is a campus tribunal, a group of administrators just says, oh, okay, well, we think it's 50% sure that you did it, not not 90%, not 99% like we would have in a criminal trial, but we just think you did it. And that, that young man can be thrown out of school, they can be disciplined, they might not be able to get a job. And people think, well, that's rare, but it's not that rare. Um, there are many reports of false allegations against young men. And in my opinion, to take away young men's due process in college is such a destructive thing to do that it's so un-American. It's, it's the fact that they, they, there is no um, requirement that it, they be held to a higher standard is, is unbelievable. And I think young men are a lot of times afraid. They're told from day one on campus that, you know, you're some type of pervert. You might rape a woman. Young women are told, watch out, you know, carry this whistle with you. Don't go, you know, watch out who you're with. A, a guy will, you know, there's date rape, and of course it's good to warn young men or warn young women and let people know, but to accuse people without evidence is is a terrible thing. Well, as an institutional president, I got one of those letters from the Department of Education. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, it, I was amazed by it because of the completely amoral context. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not as if anyone was really concerned about people here, but about protecting the uh, the ability to claim that everyone is concerned about all the right uh, politically correct issues here. And that's not to right. deny that there are genuine problems that need to be addressed, but a- as you said, denying due process is hardly a legitimate way of dealing with the problem. No, but that's the way. Because it's men, nobody really cares. And that due process extends not only from colleges, but it also extends to child support and other places where they call something a, a civil um violation if you don't pay your child support, but yet they can put a man in jail. And there have been reports as, you know, that there was an MSNBC article talking about there there were thousands of men in this country in jail every year for not paying child support. And a lot of those men are poor men who, they are not appointed a lawyer because you don't, they, they don't give you a lawyer, even though you're going to jail, if you cannot afford a lawyer they simply, or they tell you that you, you know, you don't even require a lawyer, even though they send you to jail for not paying child support payments. And a lot of those are, are poor men who have lost a job. I mean, it's, it's pitiful. And, or even other types of men, more, you know, like high-functioning men, such as the one that I talked about in New Jersey, where he was making a million dollars a year in some type of financial position and lost that job. That can happen. And men, I talk in the book about there are usually two types of men, and and some of them are what I call white knights, and those are men who tend to want to um, protect women, and they're very chivalrous, and they might be lawmakers. They might, um, for example, Rick Scott, who's the governor uh, in Florida, recently vetoed, there was a bill to reduce permanent alimony in Florida, but he wouldn't go along with it because he, he said, well, there's women counting on this money. Well, you know, somebody's supposed to pay permanent alimony the rest of their lives, even when they're retired, to somebody, hundreds, you know, money that might be beyond what they can even pay. And somehow this woman who was married for 10 years is supposed to be 
you know, supported in some standard of living that's way beyond what anybody should even expect. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. But that's sort of an example of a white knight type. And then there's what I call the Uncle Tims, who are sort of more liberal types who sort of go along with the agenda of feminism because they want to get more women or they want women to like them or they want to be like themselves. And it's it's sort of a Bill Clinton type where it's almost like a politician type who gets a lot of kudos for um you know, getting laws that he himself wouldn't fall under, but, you know, sexual harassment laws and all types of, of um, unfair laws to men where they can easily be charged with any type of sexual harassment, whether true, false, or, in, you know, nobody cares. Um, and the thing is that I guess what bothers me is um, a lot of men do care about these issues, but I think that it will take many men caring about these issues and starting a grassroots organization to fight. Uh, and men are taught not to fight because men are so afraid. And I talk a lot about that in the book and in the last chapter talking about what can you do. I think that men, it's a psychological barrier that men don't know how to proceed with this because, yes, they can fight in wars and they can fight against each other, but they can't fight against women. It's too hard. It's psychologically just very hard on them. If you take whether it's the the educational context or the larger cultural context, not to mention where political correctness uh, factors in in the larger society, uh, to try to advocate even for the fact that we have a problem with boys in school, that we have a problem with young men not being in college, that we have a problem with young men getting into adulthood and all the rest, everyone appears to be talking about this uh, except where it matters and, and in terms of the policy circles because they get no reward for taking on these issues. Not only there's no reward, but there's a backlash against you. You will be pretty much dis- dishonored and disliked. So you're right, but, but the reward is greater than that, and you have to say that the reward is the fairness. I mean, where would any fairness be? I mean, if we all all felt this way, then we would never change anything. We would never have gotten rid of slavery. We would never would have gotten women's rights. We never would have gotten uh, many rights that we as Americans have. So I think you have to go beyond that, and you have to say that the, the reward is the justice and, and doing the right thing and the fact that we will be helping our our, you know, our brothers, our fathers, our uncles, I mean, our children, I mean, to leave boys, I mean, the justice is that we can't leave young boys in schools to suffer for, you know, this type of injustice, they could put in, be put in jail, that they could be kicked out of college, that they may, there were young poor boys out there who, and, and middle, you know, income, who can't read in this country, because um, groups of politically correct people think that there's no use paying any attention to boys and that if we help boys we would somehow be shortchanging girls i mean that the unfairness of it is is i mean the reward would be to help those young men and i to me maybe because i my practice and my lifelong work has been with boys and and men to me there that's the reward is would be to you know, but I think anyone who believes in justice, I mean, what what is the reward in anybody doing anything? Uh, if if we use that analogy to say, well, there's, I mean, you have to fight back because the reward is, is worth more than just being seen as a, you know, if you go around and you think, well, everyone will like me, I mean, that that doesn't really mean anything. People only like you because you're following a herd mentality. Let me ask you to look to the future here, because when we talk about rational choice theory or rational choice uh, on the part of men making these decisions, mm-hmm. we need to expand that to the society. I mean, we also, at least uh, collectively, are making decisions as a society, as, as a culture, as a nation. Is it a rational choice for us to determine that this really isn't a problem? In other words, is it a rational choice for America to let these trajectories continue? 
No, because actually, I talk about it in the book, it'll actually end up destroying the society because what we have now is more and more women will simply be raising children alone. More and more men will opt out. What is, what is the use of having like a bunch of young guys who are disengaged from the society? More men will drop out. They don't, don't want to be engaged as often. Um, we've touched on this some, but the workforce um, will be lessened. We will have less taxpayers. We will have fewer children being born. And, you know, the fertility rates, I just saw something today on CNN about the fertility rates reaching an all-time low in 2012. And, in fact, I think only... There's only like 63 births per 1,000 women now, and that's as low as it has been in all the time that they've been keeping uh, track of those trends. And I know in uh, one of your guests, Jonathan Last, who uh, wrote an excellent book recently about uh, what to expect when you're no one's expecting, talking about what what that will mean. What it, what does it mean when fewer and fewer people have children, or the majority of those children are being born to single mothers? Uh, we know that you know forty percent of all children, forty uh, percent of children born to mothers under thirty are mothers who are unmarried, and those mothers tend not to make a whole lot of money. They're making an average of something like $23,000 per year. And what is that going to do to the future of this country? Now, for the Democrats, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, you know, they have a lot more welfare um, people who are collecting benefits, who maybe vote Democratic, don't care about politics and that type of thing. But it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for the country, and eventually that type of a system will just, it will stagnate uh, at best and explode at worst. So I well, don't we can think... see a living picture of that in that nation formerly known as the Soviet Union, uh, now known as Russia, that's in a demographic implosion and a social mm-hmm. implosion where you're left with a few oligarchs and uh, with nothing like a functioning uh, society of men who are uh, actually about the task of building a culture, building a nation, building a future, getting married, having children. I mean, you do have a very stark picture in some places of the world, I would think of Russia first of all, Mm -hmm. uh, of of what it looks like if you just let these things continue. We do, and I think people are very short-sighted because they just look at what's happened immediately, or they just say, well, that's... A lot of people tell me with the book, well, that's not true. You just interviewed a bunch of disenfranchised men, but as somebody pointed out once, there's a group that's growing. And, yeah, they, maybe they are disenfranchised. What's wrong with that? The women's movement was full of disenfranchised, you know, frust- you know frustrated and upset and women, and, and that changed. They changed the culture. Um, men are the same as women. They don't go out. They're not going to burn their bra or their whatever. <laughs> they're going to they're, they're, they're gonna have to fight maybe in a different way, but at the same time, they can learn something from women, and that is to to speak up that these issues are important, that we can't succeed this conversation to women and their politically correct supporters, that we, those of us who care, those of us who see what's happening and who care about young men and boys, and potentially the women and the girls who would, uh, who, who are involved with them, that we, we need to stand up and say, you know, it's, we need to do something about this and, and go through and look at the policies that are in place and see how to make those policies more fair on a national level. And at a grassroots level, we all need to look at, I think, a lot of the state laws that we see um, need to be changed. And, you know, you can see some of those grassroots organizations. There's a, a group called National Organization of Parents. It used to be called Fathers and Families. But they go through and they'll fight um, different laws in different, you know, states, um, trying to help fathers in particular, and that group is very successful in a lot of ways. Um, there are other groups and, and people who do make a lot of changes, but I think that we need we need more people who are out there who are willing to, to put the time and the work into 
helping men, not in a way like women get upset when they hear this. They think, well, you know, they're trying to send me back to the kitchen. Well, no, we're just trying to, to have an equal society where people are, you know, both sexes are treated fairly and where they both want to participate in a society to, to make it a richer and a more productive society where children and people benefit and, um, and do well instead of one that stagnates and becomes more like Russia or, or other countries that um, where the men just sort of opt out because, you know, yes. men opting out is, is not successful. Oh, uh, clearly. It's a timely book and a, a very timely issue. And I want to thank Helen Smith for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate your time. In her new book, Men on Strike, Helen Smith gives us a lot of information and some very pointed and, I think, important arguments. This book is also a reminder to us that, at times, Christians need to read a secular analysis in order to come to terms with the problem even as the secular world sees it. And Helen Smith has certainly helped us in this regard. Her concerns reflect the kind of secular concerns that you would find in someone who is looking at the world around them and saying, something is wrong, something's broken, We need to know what it is, and we need to figure out how to fix it. And, of course, Helen Smith really helps us with her candor, demonstrating that the challenge of fixing this problem is made all the more difficult by a society that doesn't want to admit that the problem exists, or that if it exists, it's the problem of those who are indeed the victims of the problem. That is another issue itself. Helen Smith engages so many of the books already written in the the burgeoning library of books about the boy problem or the man problem, and she suggests that many of them are uh, what she calls a matronizing. That's an alternative to patronizing. In other words, they, they deal with men from a feminine point of view, something that I think she basically escapes in terms of her own book, writing nonetheless as a woman. She writes in a way I think men can understand the problem, and she writes with enormous sympathy in terms of the patterns and the pathologies that she observes. But I think she lets men off way too easy in many of her chapters, where, for instance, she tries to suggest that men are just following rational choice. They're simply doing what appears to be reasonable to them. Rational choice theory is a form of moral argument, or sometimes moral explanation, that suggests that human beings—this is a secular theory by and large—that human beings make moral and personal decisions based upon what probably is best described as a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, what will I get out of this? For instance, in a rational choice theory of the relationship between a child and a parent, the rational choice theorist would say that the child obeys the parent simply because it's easier that way. There are more benefits to obedience than disobedience. There are severe limitations from a Christian worldview perspective to rational choice theory. And one of the clearest of those limitations is the fact that we are not, according to Scripture, merely rational creatures. There is more to us than that. There is a moral capacity that is built into us by our Creator, a conscience indeed, as Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 2, that goes far beyond what the calculus of a rational choice theorist could understand. But we do need to be informed by this kind of thinking, and we do need to understand that Helen Smith is onto something profoundly real when she says that many young men are not growing up because they do a cost-benefit analysis, and it appears that they're giving up more than they're gaining by growing up. You know, she points towards some issues that we should hear related to that, and not only in terms of the larger culture, but also in the church. What are the privileges of being a man? Why should a boy aspire to grow up? 
What does it tell us when we have reversed the entire universe such that boys are no longer trying to dress like their fathers, but the fathers are trying to dress like their sons? How is it that we have all of a sudden institutionalized adolescence as where men should aim, whether they are younger or older, and where, surprisingly enough, many are deciding to stay long after they leave the teenage years? There can be no doubt that men are on strike from marriage, from education, and from the workforce. And this is going to come with huge costs to the society. Even by a secular analysis, it should be rather easy to calculate the disaster that now looms before us. When you have all these young men who are simply not going to be functioning agents in the new economy, when you have so many women who are never going to have husbands and children who are never going to have fathers, and the pathology there is so very abundantly clear, When you have a society that is beginning to weaken itself by the fact that it is denying young men the privileges of entering into adulthood as an incentive for growing up, getting married, getting a job, keeping a job, and before that, getting an education, what you're doing is sowing the seeds of a societal disaster. But this is where Christians have to come alongside and say, that's a horrifying problem, but it's not the worst of the problem. The worst of the problem is in the souls of these young men, souls that are never encouraged to grow into true adulthood. Souls that never develop in terms of the moral and character issues that should define a man as much or more so than what is true of his job and his family and his marriage. Not that those things can be so easily separated. The Christian worldview reminds us that all of these moral goods are indeed held together in their goodness by the divine creation of God in such a way that to sever them, any one of them individually or their parts, and try to take them apart, what you end up with is weakening the whole. And, of course, that's why a secular analysis of this problem can certainly point to a lot of the pathologies, can even point to some very important political and legal and other societal improvements, but it can't point to the heart of the problem because the heart of the problem is the human heart. One of the things that becomes abundantly clear looking at this evidence, and Helen Smith has pointed to it very candidly, is that if you give young men the access to the things they demand as teenagers— And as young men, without the responsibilities for growing up into marriage, they're then not going to take marriage seriously on the other side. And when you then remove all the privileges of adult marriage, you end up with a situation like what you see in many parts of America today, where you have young men becoming fathers without marriage, and you have young women increasingly leaning into a hookup culture that seems to be emulating male promiscuity. And we wonder, how did this happen when we as a society sowed the very seeds for this ourselves? There are huge policy implications for this kind of research. For instance, most immediately, many people will think of what takes place in the schools, where an undeniable feminization of the entire curriculum and the structure has made schools virtually at every level hostile environments for boys and young men. And they get the message. They get the message loudly and clearly, and their disengagement from the world of education prior to their disengagement from the world of work is ample evidence of the fact that that message is getting through. Helen Smith has offered us a wealth of argumentation and research in this book, and it's important because she clearly is on an issue that is not only timely but urgent. Christians looking at this kind of research are prompted by a secular analysis to understand that we share all of these concerns and even more. And so we as thinking Christians need to look at this kind of research coming from whatever the source and put it in the context of the Christian worldview and say, we see not less here but more. And that should set thinking Christians to thinking. And today, we've been thinking in public. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Helen Smith, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on the 26th of September 
for one extraordinary day to commemorate the life and legacy of Dr. Carl F.H. Henry. Convened in partnership with the Beeson Divinity School, Fuller Theological Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Union University, this one-day event will feature addresses from some of evangelicalism's most prominent theologians and heirs of Henry's legacy. 100 years after his birth, Henry's vision for a confessional and global evangelicalism remains as timely as ever. For more information, go to sbts.edu forward slash events. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.